Rainbow Valley is a monthly podcast where your host Scott takes a look at key events and personalities that shaped one of the most influential, vibrant, tumultuous and swinging decades in history. Join us as we celebrate the 1960s with the stories surrounding the music and news events of the decade that shook the world. I'm not only a fighter, I'm a poet, I'm a prophet, I'm the resurrector, I'm the savior of the boxing world. If it wasn't for me, the game would be dead. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. President Kennedy died at 1 p.m. Central Standard Time. I think it's all over. It is now. It's cool. That's one small step for man. One giant leap for mankind. The 1960s heralded in a new era in a variety of ways. Society and political events influenced the cultural and art world throughout the decade. The early 60s would begin to be seen as the start of the permissive age. Lady Chatterley and the Pill would nudge open the door to a new world of liberation that would reach out to people's attitudes, the way they dressed, the music they listened to and the movies that they would watch. Nineteen sixty brought us Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho, which whilst giving the world of celluloid its first flushing toilet, it would also foreshadow an age of more open minded sensibilities. But just how much would the movie going public be prepared for an adaptation of a novella that told the story of a New York prostitute, her devoted gay best friend, Japanese landlord, and her cat? With Audrey Hepburn in what could potentially have been a career-destroying, but eventually became a career-defining role of Holly Go Lightly, the world was more than ready. Ladies and gentlemen, Rainbow Valley is proud to present the story of the making of Breakfast at Tiffany's. Yeah. 
Truman Capote was a very precise author. He would often only spend about four hours a day writing, but when he did, everything had been structured and laid out in his mind beforehand, exactly how and where he wanted the story to progress. For Capote, Breakfast at Tiffany's began life around 1957 and would tell the story of Holiday Go Lightly, a high-class call girl. A girl who desired freedom and who refused to be tied down. The story was written from the point of view of the narrator, and though it's never actually stated, Fred, as Holly names him, is gay. Holly's sexual frankness and Fred's homosexuality bind them together in a way that means they are able to love each other openly and honestly. Capote wanted to capture this freedom on the page and created a character in Holly that wasn't bound to her erotic or monetary desires. The novella was completed in early 1958 and Capote was hoping that it would be published in Harper's Bazaar that summer. Harper's Bazaar, fearing that Holly was just too openly lascivious and salacious for them, backed out. Esquire magazine, however, were not so shy, and serialised Tiffany's by the November, with Random House publishing the novella at the same time. And it wouldn't be long before Hollywood would come calling. Well before Audrey Hepburn signed on to the part, everyone at Paramount involved with Breakfast at Tiffany's was deeply worried about the movie. In fact, from the moment Marty Duro and Richard Shepard, the film's producers, got the rights to Capote's novel, getting Tiffany's off the ground looked downright impossible. Not only did they have a highly flammable protagonist on their hands, but Duro and Shepard hadn't the faintest idea how the hell they were going to take a novel with no second act a nameless gay protagonist, a motiveless drama and an unhappy ending and turn it into a Hollywood movie. Truman Capote's first and only choice for the role of Holly Go Lightly was Marilyn Monroe. Capote saw her as being perfect for the part and having been one of her closest friends over the previous ten years should certainly stand for something. Producer Marty Duro was not so sure. What he did know, though, was that central to the novella was a love story, and if done right, there could be a marketable romantic comedy here. Sure, there was a few issues with the content, but potentially there was a movie just crying out to be made. The author's insistence on Marilyn taking the lead seemed a little far-fetched. Duro certainly wasn't prepared for Capote's other suggestion that Capote himself should play the part of the male lead. 
Luckily, Juro's suggestion that the role of Fred was not a dynamic enough role for Capote was taken on board almost immediately. Marilyn Monroe, of course, was aware of Breakfast at Tiffany's, and although she had not as yet read the book, she was interested in playing the part of Holly. Marty Juro was just not so sure. Who was the real-life Holly Golightly? So many women have been named as possible inspirations to Truman Capote, including Gloria Vanderbilt, Una Chaplin, the writer and actress Carol Grace, who became Walter Matthau's wife, the writer Maeve Brennan, and model Susie Parker, that Capote called the whole speculation the Holly Golightly sweepstakes. He claimed there was a real Holly, a woman who lived downstairs from him when he was a writer who'd just moved to New York in the early 1940s, just like the autobiographical narrator of Capote's tale. Though he never identified her by name. A New Yorker named Bonnie Golightly filed an unsuccessful lawsuit against Capote claiming he based the character on her. those only familiar with the romantic movie, it's probably important to summarise the novella at this point, as it will highlight the differences between it and the movie. For those used to the glossy Technicolor rom-com, the source material reads like a sordid, dark soap opera. New York, during World War II. We meet our unnamed narrator, an aspiring writer, as he moves into a brownstone apartment building in order to pursue his career. Here, he sees Holiday go lightly late one night in the hallway, but it will be a little while before he actually gets to meet our heroine face to face. This first encounter happens one evening when Holly knocks on his bedroom window, after she's been sitting on the fire escape watching him. The conversation between the two concerns how much he reminds Holly of her brother Fred, and how safe she feels being with him. So safe in fact that she crawls into his bed to get some rest. From the outset, we start to learn that Holly doesn't like discussing anything too personal about her life and eventually she rushes back to her own apartment in tears. As Holly and the narrator get to know each other better and spend more time with each other, he discovers that Holly spends a lot of time entertaining a variety of men at boisterous parties in her apartment. 
is eventually invited to one of these parties and meets a Hollywood agent who once tried to get Holly into movies, and Rusty Trawler, who pretends that he loves Holly, but who she thinks is actually gay. At this party, we're also introduced to Mag Wildwood, a model that cannot hold her booze and who Holly doesn't particularly like very much anyway. Mag is engaged to a Brazilian diplomat named Jose Ibarra Yeager, a character who will eventually prove to be very important to the story later on. A major source of income for Holly is through visiting the alleged gangster Sally Tomato in prison every week. Quite innocently, it seems, she gets paid to send weather reports back to Sally's lawyer, O'Shaughnessy. And of course, these weather reports are not so innocent as they seem. There's a trip to Florida for Holly, Rusty, Mag and Jose. Jose and Holly start an affair whilst Mag and Rusty are in hospital, which leads to Holly falling pregnant. Mag and Rusty find out about the affair and end up marrying each other instead. Already, you can see the difficulties of translating all of this into an almost family-friendly big-screen romantic comedy. But continue reading, dear listener, and there's more dirt to be uncovered. Holly makes plans to move to Brazil with Jose after he proposes to her. Meanwhile, Adorator has fallen in love with Holly and has come to depend on having her in his life, and he is devastated. A few days before she's due to fly out to Brazil, Holly agrees to go horseback riding with the narrator in Central Park. The narrator loses control of his horse and Holly rides hard to catch up with him, and overexertion that we later learn leads to her losing the baby. Later that evening, Holly is arrested by two detectives for being part of a drug ring headed by Sally Tomato. Her seemingly innocent weather reports were actually details of drug shipments that Holly was blissfully unaware of. Holly's name is splashed all over the papers. Jose, fearful of the damage this could do to his political career, writes her a Dear John letter and returns to Brazil without her, still in the belief that she is carrying his child. Holly, now without her wedded life with Jose to look forward to, decides to leave the country, despite still being under investigation for the drug charges. With the help of the narrator, she gathers her things together and makes her way to the airport while still at risk of being observed by the authorities. After all, she already has a ticket to Brazil, so she might as well make good use of it. Holly eventually arrives at the airport and flies off to Brazil. Time passes, and eventually the narrator receives a postcard from her. She's in Buenos Aires and has fallen in love with a rich married man. She promises to write again once she's settled in a more permanent address, but we learn that he never hears from her again. He is left wondering what becomes of her and whether she ever finds happiness. That's all. Not the familiar breakfast at Tiffany's story that the movie-going public has learnt to love over the past 50 years, I'm sure you'll agree. And so, in order to translate this hotbed of call girls, affairs and miscarriages to the big screen, 20th Century Fox turned to George Axelrod. George Axelrod was probably best known for his play The Seven Year Rich, which he wrote in 1952, which was adapted into the famous movie starring Marilyn Monroe. 
and after breakfast at Tiffany's he would go on to adapt Richard Condon's The Manchurian Candidate the following year. As well as some of the more obvious changes, Axelrod notably reshaped Capote's complex narrative about sexual ambiguity into a conventional heterosexual love story. Today, the role of Holly Golightly is so closely linked with Audrey Hepburn, it's difficult to envision that casting may have possibly taken a different route. At the time of pre-production, Jane Fonda was considered. Shirley MacLaine was almost a shoo-in had she not been snapped up for another movie, and Rosemary Clooney came very close to nabbing the part. Capote's desire to have Marion take the lead were brushed aside as the role went to Audrey Hepburn. It could be quite safe to say, in Audrey Hepburn's career so far, there had been no whiff of scandal, nothing even coming close to a sex scene on screen. But now, as the 60s began to unfold and the permissive society was becoming more and more acceptable, Hepburn realised that she needed a movie that would speed her transition to roles with a newer take on sexual morality. Audrey Hepburn thought long and hard before finally accepting the role. She said at the time it was difficult and that she'd always believed, like Capote, that she was not right for the part. But that was the Holly Golightly in Capote's novella, not the version of the story that George Axelrod, along with director Blake Edwards, were planning to create. Audrey Hepburn believed that she was inexperienced in the whole Hollywood know-how, and that she had no technique for doing things that she was unsuited to, choosing instead to act purely on instinct. And it would be director Blake Edwards who would eventually persuade her. Audrey Hepburn found him to be the perfect director whose approach emphasised a similar sort of spontaneity as her own. Blake Edwards began his career in the 1940s as an actor, but soon began writing screenplays and radio scripts before turning to producing and directing in TV and films. And as well as Breakfast at Tiffany's, he's probably best known for the Pink Panther movies, and is the husband of Julie Andrews. And so to the script. Scriptwriter George Axelrod had the gargantuan task of creating something that, although shocking when you look at it, it should also be palatable to the movie-going public in 1961. In essence, the movie is about a girl who doesn't quite have her life together, but the emphasis isn't what you expect. The true facets of the movie appear to be hidden, revealed, and then glossed over like they don't matter. But they do, especially for Holly Golightly. 
In the novella, this glancing over of the subject is actually more apparent as it's told completely in echoes and reflections. Paul recounts the story of the girl he once knew, Ollie Go Lightly, and he never actually establishes an understanding of her. Ollie is a character of light attitude. Her name itself suggests as much. She lives her life from one moment to the next with no thought of looking forward to the future. The movie managed to portray Holly as a true flighty character who seems oblivious to her choices and the effect that they may have on her life. Holly, in fact, appears to choose to forget. Her capricious lifestyle includes keeping a telephone in a suitcase and possessing a bathtub that doubles up as a sofa. And still, Holly dreams of a better life but is unable to achieve it because of her choices. Things just don't seem to get any better for her. The book portrays Holly a little differently. Still the same character, but more withdrawn and a little more otherworldly. The movie's portrayal of her is visually more genuine and even just a little more relevant. Holly doesn't want to be caged in or controlled, and because of this continues to search for some form of happiness herself will allow, slowly continuing the cycle. Essentially, the main difference, aside from minor plot points, between the book and the movie is the way the story is depicted, and more importantly, the depiction of Holly as a character. In the book, Holly Golightly is a much stronger character, and you end up not feeling as much for the character when she makes those mistakes because she's distant. So why do we end up rooting for the character of Holly in the movie? Quite simply, it's Audrey Hepburn. In crafting the movie version of Holly Golightly, Edwards and Axelrod, but more specifically Hepburn, managed to create something with an entirely different feel to the novella. The movie version tells the story in a far more personal way. Ironically, the first scene to be filmed would not only be the first scene of the movie, but would also be one of the most famous opening scenes to a film in the history of cinema. New York was as much a player in the love story with Hepburn as was George Peppard. In the original trailer, Paramount emphasised the charm of the city as the characters breeze through the glitter and shimmer of New York as it's never been captured before. For a movie so allied with New York, it's amazing how little was actually shot there. Over eight days of location shooting, the film crew went to the Central Promenade in Central Park, the exterior of the Women's Prison of Detention on 10th Street, a brownstone house on the East 60s, and the steps outside the New York Public Library. And of course, Tiffany's, which opened its door to a movie company for the first time with 40 guards and sales staff to keep an eye on the jewels. The script called for early morning solitude, a moment of limbo as the street lamps fade in the face of the purple onrush of dawn. But in New York City, solitude just doesn't happen at any time of the day. But at 5am on Sunday, October 2nd, 1960, as the cab sped up Fifth Avenue, there was one brief moment when the director Blake Edward recalls every car and every person seemed to melt away. He'd say, came the time to shoot and it was as though God said well I'm going to give you a break now but for the rest of your career you're just going to have to live off of this one and nobody appeared no cars, no people it was suddenly deserted 
with the sweep of his hand, you know, <laughs> CB DeMille wiped out the whole traffic situation and we had our shot. Hepburn always had big doubts about the role, right down to the Danish in a paper bag sitting beside her in the cab. She hated Danishes and had asked Blake Edwards if she could swap it for an ice cream. He said no, pointing out it was breakfast after all. The cab door opened. Out stepped Audrey Hepburn, who went over and gazed into the window of Tiffany's, quietly eating the Danish with a paper cup of coffee in her hand. Holly Golightly was truly born at that particular moment. George Peppard made his stage debut in 1949 at the Pittsburgh Playhouse. After moving to New York, Peppard enrolled in the Actors Studio, where he studied the method with Lee Strasberg. His first work on Broadway led to his first TV appearance with Paul Newman in the United States Steel Hour in 1956, as the singing, guitar-playing baseball player Piney Woods in Bang the Drum Slowly. He made his film debut in The Strange One, made in 1957. His good looks, elegant manner and superior acting skills landed Peppard the role of the narrator, now known as Paul Varjak, in what would undoubtedly be the high point of his career. This role would lead to Peppard becoming, if only for a brief while, a major leading man. Apparently, Blake Edwards pleaded on his knees with the producers not to hire George Peppard as the male lead. Steve McQueen was considered, but was unavailable. Indeed, Peppard tried to play the role as a traditional matinee idol, not a vulnerable, flawed, naive young man. So said co-star Patricia Neal, who played Paul Sugar Mama, known in the film as 2E. She and Peppard had been friends long before the filming, but she wrote in a memoir that she was put off by his apparent desire to be an old-time movie hunk. Later, of course, Peppard would age into that more standard, macho kind of leading man, most memorably as Hannibal, the leader of TV's The A-Team. Undoubtedly, the biggest name to be cast in the movie was Mickey Rooney. He would also bring a portrayal of a character to the screen that to this day still courts controversy. Mickey Rooney passed away in 2014 at the age of 93. His Hollywood career was one of incredible highs and bitter crushing lows. As a teenager, along with Judy Garland, he was one of the biggest stars in the world. At the time of his death, Vanity Fair called him the original Hollywood train wreck. He struggled with alcohol and pill addiction and married eight times, the first time to Ava Gardner. Despite earning millions during his career, he had to file for bankruptcy in 1962 due to mismanagement of his finances. 
and by the end of his life his millions in earnings had dwindled to an estate that was valued at only $18,000. But the role that cast the longest shadow of this up and down career is unquestionably that of Mr. I.Y. Yunioshi, Holly and Paul's Japanese landlord. character appears in the novella, but Rooney's portrayal of him with taped eyelids, buck teeth, coke bottle spectacles and a hissing accent has remained one of the persistent icons of ethnic stereotype, often brought up whenever conversation turns to the topic of Hollywood racism. apartment, like much of the film, was shot on a Paramount soundstage. A signature Edward sequence, he would go on to shoot memorable parties in the Pink Panther movies, 10, Victor Victoria, and of course, The Party. It took six days to film. The extras playing the guests were all friends and relations of the director, and according to studio notes, the revellers consumed plenty of real champagne as well as 120 gallons of soft drinks, lots of party food including hot dogs, cold cuts, chips, dips and sandwiches, and 60 cartons of cigarettes. Even that didn't generate enough smoke, so Edwards brought onto the set a smoker of the sort that beekeepers use. It's never explained why, at the party, Hepburn's wearing a gown made from a towel. A scene that was cut from the final release has her taking a bath when the party breaks out and she's forced to improvise a gown. Take a listen to this voice. It's the actor Alan Reed as gangster Sally Tomato. Sound familiar to you? Someday, Mr. Friend, you take this book, turn it into a novel. Everything is there. Just fill in a little of the details. Certainly would be good for some laughs. No. No, I don't think so. This is a book would break the heart. Mr. Fitzsimmons, powder room, fifty dollars. Less eighteen dollars. Repair one black satin dress. Cat food, 27 cents. Sally, darling, please stop you making me blush. Alan Reed was, of course, probably more famous as the voice of Fred Flintstone. Mm-hmm. 
Buddy Ebsen had all but retired when he was persuaded to play Doc Go Lightly, while he's his strange husband from down south. Originally a dancer, Ebsen began his long career in films in 1935, beginning with Jack Benny in Broadway Melody of 1936, Maureen O'Hara in They Met in Argentina, and June Havoc in Sing Your Worries Away. He also danced with child star Shirley Temple in Captain January in 1936, and was cast as the Tin Man in 1939's The Wizard of Oz. Ebsen fell ill due to the aluminium dust in his makeup and was forced to drop out of the film. His brief performance in Tiffany's is said to have landed him the role of Jed Clampett on the Beverly Hillbillies, which made him more famous than ever and extended his career by decades. Henry Mancini and Johnny Mercer composed Moon River with Hepburn's limited vocal range in mind, having heard her sing in Funny Face. There was talk of having Marnie Nixon dub her vocals as she would do a couple of years later in My Fair Lady, but Edwards decided that Hepburn's own, plain, unvarnished rendition of the song fit the character better. River and 
After the movie previewed in San Francisco, cast and crew retired to a nearby hotel to discuss the very good audience reaction. One of the Paramount executives paced the room puffing on a large cigar, and Henry Mancini recalled the first thing he said was, One thing's for sure, that fucking song's got to go. Over my dead body came the response from someone, also present that day, but it's not clear who said it, however. One account says it was Hepburn, another says it was one of the producers. Hepburn worked with designer Hubert de Givenchy to craft her costumes for the film. One result, Holly's iconic little black dress, one of the most influential fashion choices in cinema history and a must for nearly every woman's wardrobe ever since. Of course it was Coco Chanel, not Givenchy, who invented the little black dress, but it was this version that Hepburn wore that made the garment a fashion staple. Christie's auctioned the original dress in 2006, and it sold for $923,000, one of the highest prices ever paid for a piece of movie memorabilia at the time, and the money went to support the construction of a school for the poor in Calcutta. The film reportedly cost $2.5 million to make. Some 750000 of that reportedly went to Hepburn, making her one of the highest paid actresses of the era. It earned $4 million in the US upon its initial release, and a further $6 million in Europe. Consumers responded almost immediately to the film. Besides the black cocktail dress, Holly's coat and purse became widely copied. Animal shelters reported a rise in demand for ginger tomcats like Holly's, whose name of course was Cat and the soundtrack album went to number one and stayed on the Billboard chart for two years. Breakfast at Tiffany's earned Oscar nominations for Hepburn's performance, Axelrod's adapted screenplay and for art direction. It won two prizes for Mancini's original score and for original song Moon River. They were the first two Oscars of Mancini's career. He'd ultimately win four times out of 18 nominations, and he would compose music for Edwards on many more movies, most notably the Pink Panther films. Thank you. 
Time would show that Capote never really warmed to the filmmaker's version, and his opinion, if anything, hardened over time. The movie became a mawkish valentine to New York City, he said, and as a result was thin and pretty, whereas it should have been rich and ugly. But whatever Capote's opinion of the movie may have been, audiences loved it. The heady romance, interwoven with chic Hollywood comedy at its finest, combined with evocative cinematography, created a classic. And although still controversial in places, the audience is left spellbound by the seamless transitions between melodrama and humour, and by the superb music score of Henry Mancini. Ultimately, it can be argued that it was not Mancini's, Edwards, Axelrod's or Capote's movie. It was without doubt Audrey Hepburn's finest screen role, and a true classic not just of the 60s, but of all time. Next time, why don't you join me as I take you back to tell the story of the time where 50 years ago today, Sergeant Pepper not only taught the band to play, but the Beatles would release a groundbreaking album that would usher in the summer of love. See you next time for the story of Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. Thanks for listening. follow the podcast on twitter at rv underscore podcast join our facebook group at facebook forward slash rainbow valley podcast or take a look at the website at rainbowvalley.libsyn.com or subscribe to the show at itunes you can send us your thoughts and feedback to rainbowvalleypod at gmail.com this has been a stinking pause production